Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Susan Metcalf is the CEO of Chief Executive Women, an organisation whose main focus is to represent Australia's most senior women leaders from all sectors. It represents more than 640 of Australia's distinguished women leaders whose shared vision is women leaders enabling women leaders. Susan has had an interesting mix of backgrounds, including having worked in the not-for-profit sector and in private enterprise. In not-for-profit, she has worked with the Smith family and Social Ventures Australia. In the private sector, Susan has worked with McDonald's and Walt Disney. She's delighted that women now represent 34% of non-executive director roles on the ASX 200, but also acknowledges there's a long way to go, as they only represent 8% of chairs in that same cohort. She makes the point that many women have shown great empathy in a crisis and nominates Jacinda Ardern as a great example of this, and also Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales Premier, and Kerry Chant, the Chief Health Officer, in terms of what they've done to help us during this pandemic. She also discusses key moments when she's asked someone, are you okay? And the difference that has made, but also shares moments when she's been asked that same question and how helpful it was for her. She feels very strongly that senior leaders need to be asked, are you okay regularly as well? She's very conscientious about self-care and many of her holidays pre-COVID involve travel and exercise. Funnily enough, my wife, Karen, and I are good friends with Sue and her husband, Alistair. And in fact, every Sunday morning, I meet with Alistair and another mate for a jog slash walk and a breakfast. I'm sure you'll enjoy Sue's mission to secure more senior leadership roles for Australian women and that of our organisation as well. Enjoy. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome uh, Susan Metcalf to the Caring CEO podcast today. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Graham. Pleasure to be here. What does care in the workplace mean to you, Susan? Care in the workplace for me is about being aware of your people, knowing them as people, and being really thoughtful about bringing company and personal objectives together. So it's it's not about putting aside your company objectives. It's not about not performing as a team. It's about thinking about the individuals, thinking about the human face of your workplace and thinking about what you need to achieve together. And how do you do that um, you know, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? What sort of things do you do to help make that happen? On a personal basis, I check in with my team several times a week, and particularly in this COVID environment, we have deliberately set up a couple of team check-ins each week, and those are purely social. They're not for work. That's how are you? Are you doing okay? What are you thinking about, feeling? Um, what's challenging you? Um, what did you do on the weekend? Anybody watching any great series? <laughs> so it's uh, just about knowing each other on a human level. And interestingly, in this COVID time, I think we've probably found out more about each other 
because mm-hmm. we are in each other's homes every day through Zoom or Teams or WebEx, whatever it might be, and people's cats wander by or <laughs> their dogs are in the picture or somebody's child's crying in the background. Yeah. And that's just fine. That's yeah. life. Yeah, it, it is true, isn't it? Like we see some expected things, but also some very unexpected things. You know, we, we're into each other's uh, kitchen or workshop or office or whatever. And, um, yeah, it does really help to expand, you know, that that knowledge of each other. For the purpose of our listeners, uh, Susan, you've had a, a really interesting career. Could you just give a, a brief overview of how you got to be where you are now? Oh, thank you, Graham. In my current role, I bring together a commercial and a not-for-profit background. So as CEO at Chief Executive Women, we're a not-for-profit organisation, but we work with some of Australia's biggest businesses to think about gender balance in their organisations. We are all about the progression of women and uh, gender equity through those organisations. So I come to the role with both a commercial and not-for-profit background Mm -hmm. Um, way back. Uh, I grew up in country New South Wales. Like many country kids, came to the city for work. Um, I worked full-time while I went to uni part-time. And during that time, I guess my career really overtook my studies. I was doing law at uni and took me quite a while doing it part-time. But uh, <laughs> at, the same, at the same time, I was working pretty hard. And that meant that my career accelerated through the marketing ranks at Westfield, at McDonald's and Disney. And uh, over time, uh, uh, as I thought about what that, what our family priorities would be, um, I stepped back from the workplace when I was uh, when my children were young, hmm. and so um, we made a family decision about that's how we were going to manage uh, life when the when the boys were young, and I really valued that time with them, but I also valued the opportunity to career, continue my career by working part time and working in a consulting role uh, to various organisations. And that's when I got involved in not-for-profit organisations in a pretty substantial way. I ended up working with uh, the Smith family and then later Social Ventures Australia, which is a really innovative organisation in the social sector and thinks about change at quite a systemic strategic level. And from there came to Chief Executive Women with both that not-for-profit and commercial background. You've had some, uh, you know, really interesting involvement with those different types of organisation. Like Disney, for example, has a reputation of really big on customer experience and that side of things. How did you find them to work with? It suited me really well to work at Disney. I um, felt strongly about the product. It's fantastic, some of the things that Disney does. And at other places I've worked too, but probably more than most at Disney, you get to work on projects uh, that you just don't work on anywhere else because of who that company is and the opportunities that you have there. Mm, Yeah. And likewise, uh, McDonald's has been incredibly successful and they're very successful because in many ways, because they train people very well um, and often really young people, you know, 14 to six year olds in the, in the stores. Mm. And I actually, um, know a colleague who worked with Volkswagen and then just went recently to McDonald's. And the thing that surprised him the most was that most of the executive team actually came through the stores and learned, you know, learned the craft, um, you know, flipping hamburgers. Uh, I thought that was quite extraordinary, but they are very, very good at training young people, aren't they? And, And did you get any insight into how they do that, how they go about that? 
McDonald's is a fairly is a very organised place, and they certainly do have well established systems and processes in place. Um, and that does mean that young people like that get tremendous opportunities. You might not necessarily come out of a traditional academic background, but if you can get into McDonald's and it suits you to work in the systems and the ways that they have, you are strongly supported by systems. And as a consequence, you may have opportunities that you don't have anywhere else. Mm. You mentioned that, um, you know, in your current role now that you've been able to combine the background of uh, not-for-profit as well as, you know, the commercial sector. What did you learn from the not-for-profit sector, which is really helpful in your role now? Not-for-profit roles are really challenging. Um, And I think for many people coming out of the commercial world, it can be quite an eye-opener to go into the not-for-profit world and suddenly your success can't be measured in black and white. You're not just running down the balance sheet and seeing what's at the bottom of your P&L. Because the measures of success are much more about long-term outcomes. You're dealing with people, their health, their well-being, and the things that they want to achieve in their community, with their community, for their community. And those are not things that can be measured on a spreadsheet a lot of the time. Mm. So you learn to think very strategically. You learn to think very long-term. And you learn to live with a lot of ambiguity. And those are really often very challenging for people that come out of not out of the for-profit world, Mm. where it's much easier to see how you're performing by your share price, Um, and and you have a lot more resources and structure than you may have in the not-for-profit world. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Louise Baxter, who's the CEO of the Starlight Foundation, and also happens to be a a work colleague from the old days of Johnson Johnson. But she used an interesting term that, you know, she considers uh, Starlight to be a profit for purpose uh, foundation, which I thought was a nice way to term it, that any surpluses went into increasing the reach and impact of the organisation. I thought that was a nice slant on it. Mm. It's uh, something that the not-for-profit sector struggles with. How, what should they call themselves? How should they name themselves? Because it is all about purpose. And they, they, you can't be ashamed of making some money to plough back into your purpose mm. because there's a pretty st- there's a long-standing saying in the not-for-profit sector, it's more money, more purpose, more mission, <laughs> more money, more mission. <laughs> and so if you do if you do make a profit or if you do secure funding from somewhere, then you have got more money to deliver your mission. So finding a way to um, make money to be a social enterprise, to um, bring others on your cause and put more money behind your mission um, is a really worthy objective in the sector. Yeah. So your membership base is made up of, Senior women, either CEOs or I guess uh, non-executive directors, and I assume they're across a, a spectrum. There, some in the public sector, some private sector, some not-for-profit, local government. What's the sort of mix of your membership base? Mm. So, chief executive women has a long history in the executive fields. Um, the organisation's thirty-six years old. It was set up by. Barbara Kale and a number of other women, like Ida Buttrose, like um, uh, that at the time uh, could look out on the corporate landscape and see each other because they were a very rare species. <laughs> so, so they came together not only to support each other, 
but also to help bring more women through the pipeline of leadership. Mm. And so we have uh, the executive roles are very deep in our DNA, but we also recognise that leadership across the community comes in many different organisations and different roles. So today we do we still have very strong representation in executive roles. We are called chief executive women. Um, <laughs> But we do have good representation amongst non-executive directors across academia, across the not-for-profit sector, across government, across sports organisations. So we think about that leadership quite wide, quite broadly across the community. And are the, are the needs all similar across, you know, those segments that you talk about or, or is there differences depending on where they are? I'd love to say to you there's some shining lights out there in some sectors where women are doing extraordinarily well in even numbers. Um, Actually, in government, uh, government have committed to uh, targets and to gender probably more deeply than some other sectors. So you do see in in some parts of government you see greater representation of women and more even representation of women. CEW does a senior executive census every year, and in this year that'll be out in September. And in that census, we have a look at the ASX 200. This year we'll have a look at ASX 300 and to see where women are in those senior leadership teams. And the pipeline of women leaders is just not strong in Australian companies. More than half of the ASX 200 do not have a woman in a profit and loss role that over time will lead to a CEO role. Wow. And and do you have a view about what's the root cause of that or are there many contributors? It'd be great if there was one root cause, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we could focus on that and get that done. Um, there are many contributing factors. Um, there is very longstanding and inherent bias in the system. Mm. There are challenges in Australia where 95% of parental leave is taken by women. Mm. Um, There is a really strong need for senior men to role model flexibility uh, and things like taking parental care and care of themselves, Mm. particularly, you know, through this COVID time, there are so many men that for the first time have been at home with their kids during the day and seeing what happens in households Mm. and seeing and being able to do things like pick up their kids from school for the first time ever. So at at the moment there's a lot of men out there going, oh, wow, I never knew all this happened. And secondly, (laughs) isn't this fantastic? I can pick my kids up from school and actually maybe I do need to do a load of washing. Um, (laughs) And if we can keep that running, uh, into the future when when life does return to some sort of post-COVID normal, mm. new normal, um, then that will help normalise what it means to work flexibly mm. and effectively take out one of the barriers that currently exists to women progressing. Yeah. I saw, I think it was about three or four weeks ago, that the uh, new CEO of KPMG, Andrew, I just can't remember his surname, but his, one of his signature announcements was that every person, um, no primary or secondary, will get 26 weeks of, um, you know, uh, leave, childcare leave. And I thought that must, mm-hmm. it's a great development and hopefully something that um, other companies will em- emulate. 
Mm, that's a great statement. And there are other companies out there doing similar things. And mm. increasingly you see young men wanting to take that time. So mm. the more we can celebrate that and young men uh, evidencing and exercising care, the better we'll be as a community. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, thinking about you've been in a wide range of teams, given that you've worked in a whole lot of different sectors and some really world-class companies as well. What do you think are the foundations of having a high-performing team? Yes, a high-performing team in uh, different environments. I think outside of subject matter expertise, I think you do have to think about those socio-emotional factors. You do have to get on with your team. You do need to like the people you work with. You do need to feel company comfortable with the company purpose. So you can be a really strong subject matter expert, but if you're not in a place that aligns with your own values and uh, you have, have trust in the people around you, then you're never going to be a part of a high-performing team. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, saw that that uh, it was a report by Deloitte, uh, and I think it was last year or 2019, it was called The Future Work is Human. And it was very interesting in that it divided uh, careers up into three areas. There, there was the hand career, you know, which is the drivers and bricklayers and all that sort of stuff, um, the head careers, which accountants, lawyers, actuaries, that sort of thing, and then the heart careers, and that's careers entirely around collaboration and working with other people and doing that successfully. And all the growth going forward is shown to be in that heart career area, which is about no one can know it all themselves. They've got to be able to work well in a team. And, and I think that typically, um, and I know you can't make an absolute statement, but typically women are much better at uh, sensing what goes on in the team and whether people are engaged or not engaged. And um, in most cases, uh, I think are better than, than um, men at collaborating and when I was in recruitment, I was in recruitment for 15 years, I used to have this rule of thumb that anything a man talked about in his achievement, I'd, I'd notch it down 25%. And anything a woman said, I'd notch it up 25%. So how how can women, I guess, um, be eligible for these roles when they're really their style of leadership is really needed? I would agree with you that we are at a time in, in life, in the world where the leadership of women is crucial. Um, we've seen through COVID some of the most successful leaders, country leaders, have been women. Mm. And I want to avoid generalisations too, but, there, you know, you look at somebody like Jacinda Ardern who has been an extraordinary example of different leadership. She's, mm. not, a, she's not a traditional prime minister by any means and mm. she's been wildly successful. Her, let me start that again. You look at somebody like Jacinda Ardern, and she's widely accepted as, as having been very successful during this period because mm. she has shown some of those very human characteristics. Mm. In Australia, you look at some of our female premiers have done extraordinarily well in this period. 
So why are those women more successful or why are they perceived as being successful in their roles? There is certainly an element of they are of the time. We are at such an extraordinary time where that care and compassion has been deeply needed and the reassurance of those leaders that are able to bring that personal warmth to some very hard decisions has mm. been very well received. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure that answers the question, Graham. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, it is. And, uh, you know, I just think, as you say, of a couple of the, the female premiers that, uh, you know, have handled the crisis very, very well, just in terms of um, tapping into experts, like not putting themselves forward as experts and um, embracing others. And I think it's also, even on a global scale, you know, I think it was shown that women prime ministers or presidents handle the, the disaster much, much better than the, the macho Donald Trump dictatorial style of uh, of leadership and, um, you know, hopefully that recognition really leads to more opportunities opening up. Mm. You, you were asking before about what lessons you learn out of the not-for-profit sector and I think one of the lessons that is very, um, it, it's hard to learn when you first go to the not-for-profit sector because you're used to being in charge and you're the leader and you've got to make the decisions and so on. The not-for-profit sector teaches you to listen and to um, be led by what the participants in what you're doing need, by their needs and their wants and their desires, and to park what you think until you've actually gathered quite a lot of input from a lot of other people. And perhaps it's no coincidence that the not-for-profit sector is predominantly female in terms of employees. Mm -hmm. um, th those skills are absolutely required in the not-for-profit sector around and go to the dignity of the people that you're working with. Yeah. And so if female leaders are bringing some of those skills in this time of crisis, perhaps there's a parallel there in some of the lessons. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What about uh, self-care? You know, um, for our listeners, I'm just disclosing this now, my wife, Karen, and I are good friends with uh, Susan and her <laughs> husband, Alistair. And uh, I'd be really interested, you, you do some interesting things around self-care, Susan. So would you mind sharing with others, you know, how, how you keep your own tank full? Mm, I'm not sure where you're going to take me here, right? <laughs> 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 um, for listener purposes, um, so self-care, I do believe strongly in self-care and I often uh, play back to my team that self-care is not selfish um, and often as women we find ourselves at the centre of families and balancing work, family, uh, life circumstances around us and if, if you fall apart in those situations, then everything falls apart, not just you, everything around you does. Mm. So self-care is particularly, I think, for working women, but mm. for, for all of us in the centre of our families and our, our lives, and self-care is not selfish. So for me, it is about things like friends and family. It is about exercise. And for me, it's also about doing something creative. Um, so my personal commitment to myself is to do something creative every weekend. 
And that might just be cooking a meal or cooking something different. It might be drawing. It might be, it could be anything. Um, but I find that helps me enormously in terms of balance. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a great example. So is this, you, you, you just see that as a real uh, something you enjoy, it's a strength, and this is a way to really play it out? Do you, do you have the opportunity to do the creative stuff in your work now, or is this just something completely unrelated to your professional life? So my professional life has often had a creative element to it. Uh, growing up through marketing, you do do a lot of creative work. Um, in my work now, I am required to think creatively, and perhaps all of us have been required to think creatively in the last year as COVID has thrown all sorts of challenges at us. But my commitment to myself on those weekends is an unrelated to work kind of thing. It might be, it might, cooking's a really good example. I often cook something interesting or different or, and the, just the process of thinking about that thinking about what I need, stepping through the process and having a lovely outcome that I can share with friends and family at the end of it is, uh, for me, quite fulfilling. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo Poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress, and this provides easy-to-follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to hit the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. What I was actually thinking about when I was thinking self-care was, you know, your enjoyment of swimming and in particular mm-hmm. about that really interesting holiday you went on in Greece where you swam. <laughs> Were you just explaining what, how that worked uh, for people who yes. may not have heard of it before? Yes. So um, we do um, enjoy exercise and we do enjoy travel. So the opportunity came up to go to Greece and go on a swim trip. So rather than walk village to village, you actually swim place to place. And <laughs> it can be quite a way. You can have to put in a bit of preparation for it. But being in the sea, swimming, great exercise, lovely weather, beautiful, clear water, interesting group of people. Um, and at the end of the day, you can eat whatever you like. It's <laughs> fun all day. It's great to, it's great to earn that re- that right, isn't it, to uh, mm-hmm. eat whatever you like. And um, exactly. I also have a, uh, a ritual every Sunday morning where I, I meet with uh, Susan's husband, Alistair, and another friend, Bernie. And um, we used to meet at Curl Curl and run down to Manly and come back and have breakfast. But with COVID, we're having to find some other locations. But it is a really, really... Lovely thing to look forward to each weekend, you know, to be outside in a beautiful environment and finish it off with a big breakfast. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a very, very good element as well. It really is. And I think that observation, Graham, about being out in nature is a really important one 
for me, diving into the sea, swimming is really fulfilling and centering. Um, and similarly, you know, you're out walking in nature, and we have extraordinary opportunities around us. We've just got to make ourselves get out and do it because the time that you invest in those things pays off in spades more than more, much, much more than the time it takes. Yes, and it's interesting the impact that COVID has had. I've got a, as you know, we've got a, a walk right beside our area in the bush, and um, I reckon there's ten times the number of people on the walk at the moment. <laughs> there's families out. There's uh, oh, there's just so many more people, and that's got to be a, a good thing as well. It does. I had a similar experience this morning. I was out walking in our neighbourhood this morning. I thought, where are all these people come from? (laughs) (laughs) Um, In terms of uh, the lessons you've learnt along the way um, from leadership and good leadership, who who have you learnt from and and really benefited from watching them and seeing how they they do it? Hmm. I think I've had the benefit of some very strong leaders around me. I've had the benefit of some leaders that I wouldn't want to emulate. Mm. And so for me, it's about taking the best from different people or taking the pieces that work for me rather than the best it's the pieces that work for me. And that hasn't always been from the highest profile, loudest person out the front. Sometimes it's been from the person working alongside me and sometimes it's been for the, from the person working for me. Um, so I think that while I, I won't cite you one specific example, I would say it's about it's about finding what's right for you and trying some of those things, not being afraid to try something different and continuing to learn no matter how senior you are or how long you've been doing your role or how much of a subject matter expert you are, there is always somebody out there you can learn from. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about, uh, you know, some humble people. And I I would say that if there's one universal quality of the people that I've uh, been interviewing for this podcast series, it would be humility. And, uh, you know, take, for example, Mike Schneider, who's the CEO of Bunnings. He has his four H's of leadership, and that's honest, humble, helpful and happy. So he actually has it as a defining point of his uh, DNA. I've uh, Mm. also been lucky enough to interview uh, Pat Greer, former CEO of Ramsey Healthcare, very, very successful. And he talks about leading from behind. He he doesn't describe himself as a rah-rah person, but leading from behind. And and maybe it is that, um, you know, you mentioned the, the example of Jacinda Yadern, that, uh, you know, this this style is um, getting greater priority as I think it really needs to. Mm, it's an interesting question and it's something that I think about quite a lot in my role about when do I lead from the front and when do I lead from behind? Mm. And most of the time I lead from behind. Mm. Most of the time it's about influence. It's about thinking about what needs to be achieved. It's about how are we going to get there? What are the pieces we need to have in place? Who needs to be in this in this rather than rather than working from I've really, really worked from a command and control structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you think of a time when you've had to ask someone in the workplace, are you okay? Mm. Good question, and uh, particularly in this COVID environment, and actually that's happened this week. 
um, when I was on a call with a team member who was clearly not okay. Mm. And having asked that question, a whole lot of information came forth and uh, we collectively made a decision that she'd take a few days off. Mm. Just stop. Just stop. Turn Mm. everything off. Just stop. Deal with the things that you need to deal with. Think about life. Um, We'll see you next week. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's great. And actually, one of the, uh, I, I mentioned Bernie previously, who joins Alistair I on Sunday, and he has, you know, he works with software developers in Australia and over in the Philippines, and they have a 10-minute stand-up each day. And the first question is, are you okay? And uh, if people aren't, well, they don't go beyond that. You know, they work out, work out you know, what's the issues and people brainstorm ideas. So, you know, that has been, I think, a really important um, element of, of how work has changed in this very challenging time. Can you think of a time when someone asked you, are you okay, and it made a real difference? I'm fortunate that my team asked me that every now and then. Mm. Um, and, you know, what difference? And I guess that's just reassuring to know that they're connected yeah. Mm, that they're sort of aware yeah. of yeah. what's going on. Yeah. I, I remember speaking to Damien Mew, who's um, he's the CEO of AIA, Australian Insurance Company, and I was um, interviewing him for a video for Are You OK? And he basically said, you know, <laughs> it's really nice when people remember to ask me, am I OK? Because... Uh, mm. You know, there's lots of things that I have on my plate and uh, it's just lovely mm. to see that people are aware and think that it's important enough to um, to ask that question. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So. I think that's a, a for many CEOs, particularly in big organisations that are particularly challenged at the moment, you know, those, those CEO roles can be really lonely. Those senior leadership Brutal. roles can be really lonely. Brutal. So to have... Excuse me. Have somebody else just check in with you? Um, can be, I would, I would think, could be enormously beneficial to you. Yeah. And it actually just brings me to one of the um, really special features around our organisation, Chief Executive Women, because women are in those senior roles are still relatively rare. It's one of the big benefits of the organisation that mm-hmm. if something is happening to a particular woman, or if members see something happening. There's a lot of reach out to her. Yeah. People people just connect and say, you might want to talk to me. I've been there. I've done that. Happy to have a coffee with you or can I help you with that? And mm-hmm. that that the power of just having somebody else who's been through that experience just reach out to you, I think can be, to your point, can really make a difference. Yeah, and, and uh, I've, I've just also interviewed on the podcast um, Marcus Blackmore, you know, former CEO and chairman of um, Blackmores. And he was um, Christine Holgate's previous boss before mm. she went to OzPost. And, um, and in fact, uh, he, uh, you know, encouraged her to go for that position because uh, he felt that, uh, you know, she'd, mm. she'd reached a great stage with Blackmore. She'd really substantially increased um their sales and impact into China in particular. And uh, when that uh, scenario happened where, you know, she was essentially sacked and, and then had to go before the, um, 
the uh, the Senate inquiry, you know, he flew down to Canberra to be with her, or to, mm. not to be with her, but, but to be in the crowd and to support mm. her. And I thought that was just um, amazing leadership on his behalf mm. to do that and to say publicly that, um, you know, she was a mm. fantastic operator. So it's it's nice mm. when you see that uh, that sort of support when, things go really badly and uh you know in are you okay we say you know your close friends whether it's work colleagues or what are your scaffolding and when things go wrong you need those people around you you know to, mm. to stay in good shape mm. yeah it's a it's unfortunately we live in a world where it's very easy to pile on to something that's happening and forget about the human dimension of it regardless of the ins and outs of whatever has happened, however it's happened, there is still a person at the centre of those crises yeah. and they you know, they need to come out of it whole. They need to come out of it as as a person, as, as you know, somebody who's living, operating, breathing and hopefully able to go on and do other things. Absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of um, books or uh videos or movies or have there been any particular books that have you found very helpful to shape the way that you lead in your role? Uh, one book that I often go back to is Carol Dweek's um, Mindsets book about positive mindsets and going into any, going into any situation to think, what can I learn here? What, mm. what's, what, what's new here? What can I learn rather than feeling like you're at the centre of attention and that the pressure's all on you? That I find that that mindset to actually go into it with a curious mind, to be mm. mindful, um, to be a very helpful reference point to change how you can think about a, a topic or a subject. Yeah, I, I well, love it as well. And, and it matches incredibly well with, um, you know, some of the research, the latest research in books like The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, in research by Google, they found that the most successful teams, and Harvard also, the most successful teams, are those where they have high psychological safety. And what that means is that people feel safe to take risks they, and, and know that if it doesn't work out, we say, well, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from yeah. this to take forward? And uh, it is an incredibly, um, that, that growth mindset about thinking you can continually evolve and keep going, I think is... Uh, just uh, yeah, a really a really great thing to think about. It's um, yeah, very, very good indeed. Particularly at the moment, I think when there is so much ambiguity and uncertainty out there, you have to you have to think. What can I learn here? How do I bring some sense to this? How do I how do I learn about this? How do I grow through this? Um, another book that I uh, find quite useful too is um, because it, I think coming out of a marketing and create an area that has some creativity to it. Another book that I found very helpful um, is Daniel Kahneman's Fast and Slow Thinking. Yeah, I haven't um, read that. Yeah, what, what mm, were the main things that come out of that for you? Well, it talks about I trust my intuition, but it talks about what are the dangers in trusting your intuition and making sure that actually some of your slower thinking skills might actually be what you need to rely on in the context of your because we all make quick decisions, snap decisions, and mm. to actually understand what's going on when you do that and to know the moments when you actually need to test that rather than accept it 
helps you think about your own biases, your own uh, conclusions that you might jump to. And some of those will be right. But sometimes actually you've got to reflect on those and think, maybe I need to think about that again. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've heard of um, the, the study by Dunning-Kruger. Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger? It's, it's, it's basically, it, it's very interesting reading uh, to Google it, but essentially these two researchers found out that people that knew the lowest amount about something always overestimated their ability, like the, the, the bottom 10% in driving capacity rather themselves in the top 70% sort of thing. Right. And um, it's, it's a term which really... Mm-hmm. Um, was Googled a lot during the whole Trump era, for example, you know, because there was someone there who prided himself for not reading anything and speaking from his gut and this sort of thing. And, uh, but, you know, this study has been shown to be 100% true. And, you know, what you described before is a curiosity approach to anything. That's what they're talking about there is that, um, you know, we're, we're best equipped if we do have that approach, no matter, if, even if we're regarded a, um, you know, a world expert on something, that you, you continually have that curiosity approach. And that, of course, is a key part of academia, which, uh, you know, Karen's very much part of. Mm. You know, you've got to have a thesis, you've got to, you know, prove that thesis or disprove that thesis. And, uh, you know, if it's disproved, that's a, that should be seen as a victory as well. If you had the opportunity to have a dinner and learn something from someone who's alive or dead, anyone, (laughs) but you had a chance to have a dinner party with one or two or three people, anyone come to mind? There's a hard question. Um, (laughs) There are so many people out there doing interesting, fabulous things, and there are so many people that I would like to thank for what they're doing. So, you know, in particularly in this COVID instance, you know, I live in New South Wales, so, you know, I'd really like to be able to thank Kerry Chan for what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, it's a, it's a front every single day. Oh. Every single Colossal. day. Colossal resilience and um, real um, commitment and purpose to what she's doing. Yeah, very um, much so. I think I think um, the other day when she had that instances of the glasses going askew and everybody was jumping in saying, "Isn't that ridiculous?" And she stood up and said, "Just focus on what's important. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> Good on you. You know, here you are, you know, announcing all the COVID numbers and what's being done and so on, and people worry about your glasses. Get rid. And says, "Is there anything relevant about?" care and performance and in teams that you think is important but we haven't discussed yet? I don't know. I think um, we've covered a fair bit of ground, Graham. I think um, for me as a leader, care is integral to what I do. Mm. So, you know, to I find, I find the question to, you know, the I find the prospect of separating care from who you are and what you do to be quite alien. Yeah, um, yeah. Then I don't, I couldn't perform without it. I don't think, and I, I don't think my team could could, could perform without some level of care amongst one another and yeah. for one another. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I had a, a webinar this morning, and I asked people to reflect on their highest performing team and. Um, 
you know, a great team they've been part of, and they had a whole bunch of things there, you know, strong vision, complementary strengths. Um, but, uh, but I had one there uh, had each other's back, and that scored 80%. They could choose three, but that scored 80%. And the next highest one after that was actually feel safe, and that was like 40%. So it just mm. shows, you know, how much we need to have a sense of belonging to really perform well. It really mm. um, really bring, mm. brings it home. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating being able to just sort of tap into the audience and see the things that are really important to them. Mm. And also mm. the things that people are really struggling with. I've done hundred and 43 webinars in the last 18 months and I ask people what's been most challenging. Always number one is uncertainty. Every yeah. single time it's uncertainty. And uh, I think it is that. It's just that volatility of change, isn't it? That even if we're, you know, like Tasmania and free and easy at the moment, they still can't go and see their, you know, friends or colleagues or whatever. It just been has been uh, quite extraordinary. Mm, we are been- creatures of... Sorry, Gary, I was just going to say, well, our creatures of habit. So, you know, dealing with that ambiguity and uncertainty is difficult for us. You know, we're taught to, you do this, you do that, and you get to that answer. Yeah. At the, work, at the moment, the world just doesn't work like that. It doesn't. It really doesn't. So knowing what you know now, Susan, and if you could go back and talk to the 17-year-old who just graduated from a country high school, what was the school that you were at? Forbes High for most of my education, although I did do a year overseas as an exchange student and I did do a little bit of time at a boarding school as well. Right. Well, say Forbes High, you're coming out, you're 17 or 18 years old. What advice would you give yourself then, knowing what you know now? I think I would say give yourself a break. Mm -hmm. Give Mm. yourself a break, you know. Mm. Um, And that's something that I say to my teams quite a lot, actually. Don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourself a break. You know, yeah. you, your expectations of yourself will be higher than anyone else's. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you need to step back and give yourself a break. Yeah. Accept, yeah. You know, acknowledge what you've done, you know, acknowledge your wins, learn to learn to celebrate your own wins. Give yeah. yourself a break. Yeah, a lot of a lot of my interviewees have said something in this to the same effect as that is, you know, it's gonna be an unexpected wild ride at times, but, um, you know, hang in there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I guess that's also showing self-care and self-compassion, isn't it? Mm, that's right. You've got to look after yourself. And I think that's something you learn to be better at. And maybe once you get over your wild years, you're, <laughs> you learn to be a bit better at that. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure catching up today, Susan, talking professionally. And uh, I would say that I also look forward to seeing your husband, Alistair, on Sunday morning for our usual catch-up. It's been great to have you on the show. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.